And then, you know, as you know, in this business, when you start selling things, you know, in 60 to 90 days and you double your money in 60 to 90 days, it starts to snowball really quickly. Welcome to the Big Picture Blueprint. I'm your host, Dan Habercost, along with Mason McDonald. And we're going to discuss all things land, real estate, and business in general with all kinds of exceptional people. Let's get started. Welcome to the Big Picture Blueprint. I am one of your hosts, Dan Habercost, along with Mason McDonald. We have an excellent guest today, but before I get into that, Mason, how's it going back? Uh, we got about nine inches of snow over the weekend, so I'm envious of you getting to live that entrepreneurial life and spend a whole month in San Diego. Uh, but no, I'm very excited about our guest today. I've heard so much about Pete. I've seen so much of his content, and um, it's going to be a really great and fun interview with uh, three three big dogs in the land investing space. But Dan, why don't you tell us about our guest? Yeah, absolutely. I was excited too, because I mean, this is someone we can learn from. And most people know him as the 31st great-grandson of King Henry II. Uh, but for those who don't know that, we have Pete Reese, who is a big-time land investor, uh, which we'll get into here momentarily. But Pete, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. And how are you guys doing? Awesome. Awesome. Great. Beautiful day. Yep. I'm glad you brought up the the uh, 31st great-grandson of King Henry II. That's a big part of my identity. It's actually not. I'm just joking. But I, <laughs> I found that my daughter found that out. Like she was, uh, you know, on Ancestry.com where you kind of follow the clues all the way back. And it just kept going back and going back. And I don't know. I think it's right. You know, I'm going to go with it and maybe put it in my Instagram bio or something like that. The, the king of land investing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's it. That's the tie-in right there. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Pete, there's a million questions we could ask you, but you've been on a ton of podcasts already. So if anyone wants your backstory, they can find that easily. And the big thing that Mason and I wanted to jump right into is, you know, we run into people all the time. They want to get started and it takes them six months, maybe a year to do their first couple deals. And one thing that stood out when we were reading and, and listening about your backstory is you dove right in and had a multiple seven figure year, your first year. And so, I mean, there's a lot of questions I could ask there, but the biggest thing I, I would say is what about your mindset or your mentality allowed you to just hit the ground running to such an extreme degree? Mm. Uh, I've always been the type that if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it big. I'm going to try to do it big. And uh, sometimes that works out great. Sometimes it doesn't. In this case, it got me a lot of momentum going forward, you know, from, from the get go. And I don't know, I've had a lot of experience in different types of businesses and in, in real estate investing before. And I've always really been after like the a type of business that I can really scale. And land investing really appealed to me because especially at the beginning, it was just direct mail that we were doing. And that was, you know, to me, it was very simple. It's like you send out more mail, you get more deals and, uh, you know, you invest more money in, in your marketing side and, and, and you bring in more deals and more profit in the end. So I like the simplicity of it. It really made sense. I had done enough research to know that the business model actually works. You know, like I saw people that were doing deals. I mean, they were, there wasn't a lot of transparency when I started about like, like, like real details, like how much they were making on those deals and things like that. But I had a pretty good indication that it actually worked. So I was like, okay, I know I can figure this out. I, you know, I bought a course on it and dove right into it and really started learning the business model. And then it was just like, Hey, I'm going to 
I'm just going to go for it. I sent out 10,000 letters, my first batch. Two weeks later, sent out another 10,000, kind of, it all went from there. So, and in hindsight, that first mailer I sent out, 10,000, I did, I got zero deals from it. I was just looking at this again the other day. The second mailer I send out, I did better. I fixed some of my mistakes, but I actually only got one deal from that mailer as well. So if I would have just stopped and said, oh, this business doesn't work, you know, obviously it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have turned into what it's turned into now or what it will turn into in the future. So anyhow, I, I just, I'm just like that. I just feel like I feel most comfortable when I'm pushing, when I'm really trying to do something big, I would not be happy if I was just like, okay, I'm going to send out 500 letters and see if it kind of works. I need to like really know, I think they need to really go into it. So I think, I think that point right there is what so many beginner land investors or even more experienced people need to recognize is what Pete said of the reason this business was attractive was due to the scalability of it and the simplicity of what the lead generation is, where it's, oh, you haven't gotten any deals. How much mail have you sent? Okay. 100 or 1000 X that because your 50 letters you sent is not enough to actually make it, um, make it in this business, especially with how much more competition there is. And there's coaching programs all over and more people are getting involved in the land space. But Pete, um, I know you're not doing it by yourself. What does your team look like today um, with with you at the helm of it and everything else going on? Yeah. Okay. Well, the team itself has grown quite a bit over time. When I started, it was just me. And I had another business before, uh, which which was a, a great business. It was an education business related uh, to blogging and travel blogging. That was actually my wife's business. She was the face of it. And we did really well with that. Um but for for reasons for some reasons we got out of that business and I took an assistant kind of with me from from that business that was working with me and uh, you know I had them kind of start doing some of the basic administrative type tasks and you know scrubbing lists and all these kind of things I could kind of train him one one by one to do and and then that worked out great but but now uh, fast forward to uh, about three years later from when I actually learned about land investing it was it was actually. Uh, Thanksgiving time of 2020 is when I bought the course and like started getting into it. So we're not even at three years now, but so my team now, uh, I've got, got about 12 people on my team and, you know, a lot of it is, and, and, uh, you know, we're, we're in the middle of like working on hiring more people as well, because what's happening is that we're kind of, um, as we grow, we can get more specialized in the roles. You know, like for instance, um, we're going to be, we're going to be bringing on a, a, we call a value ad manager. So basically their only job is to call to get bids, call to, you know, arrange, you know, like brush clearing on a property, get septic and perk test lined up, like all these kinds of things. It's like a full-time job now. And right now, multiple different people are kind of filling that role on my team. Um, and then also we're going to be hiring a marketing manager as well, basically, they're just going to be dealing with all the, the listings that we're working on. Now, even though we resell of our, all of our properties with real estate agents, it's a job to manage the real estate agents, make sure you're on top of price reductions, doing some other marketing things that we can add uh, to that as well to sell our properties quicker. But uh, so I've got, I've got people in pretty much uh, a lot of different roles. I've got someone that intakes all the leads that come in, put them in, puts them in her CRM. Now leads will come in, even if we're just doing direct mail, they come in from a lot of different places. You know, like some people will mail back a signed offer. Some people will call into our call service. 
Um, some people will text in, some people will email in. So all these different ways. And, and he kind of compiles all that stuff and uh, does some basic stuff like creates a map, does some other things like that, puts it in their CRM. It kind of puts, makes it into a nice little package. Uh, I've got another person. Uh, well, I've got two acquisition managers on my team. And basically, they're in charge of, you know, all the communication with the the uh, sellers on the properties. So that's um, that's kind of a big job. So their job is to kind of take it from from you know like initial contact all the way to a signed contract. Uh, I've got um, transaction manager uh, on the buy side, transaction manager on the resale side. I've got um, a person that helps me put together my lists you know, like scrubbing lists, things like that. Got another person on my team that all they do is they're kind of running comps for all these like potential leads that come in all day. So they're uh, filling out a little comp, little comp report for all these different properties. They're also working on the pricing on my list, that same person. I've got a general assistant that's kind of, uh, you know, that just kind of fills in some of the blanks on some of these areas. Uh, I've got a COO now and COO is in charge of running the team and scaling the business. Um, and trying to get me out of a lot of the day-to-day stuff that that's that's happening, and I'm, I'm continually like trying to give my duties away to other people. And what's crazy is it it just seems to never end. Like I still have, you would think with all these people, I'd be able to get rid of everything I'm doing, but there's still a bunch of stuff that I have to do on the day-to-day uh, business. And eventually, I I'd rather be like on top of the uh, you know the the business and setting the direction, the mission, the goals, um, and, and refining things rather than doing like working in the business, like working on the business I want to be doing, but not working in the business as much. Uh, although I like a lot of the stuff it's, uh, it, you know, the, the more, the busier that you get, the harder it is to keep up. And I feel like, I feel like I, if I can farm out some of my duties, then it, it'll actually be a better run organization overall because I'm a bottleneck in a lot of situations. Like people are like asking me questions and all these kinds of things that it's, it's hard to be on top of all that stuff. So, okay. So also I've got a, an executive assistant. Um, he kind of helps me with like, uh, a lot of just general stuff and, you know, setting my schedule and driving on, on big projects and things like that, that I need to get done. And uh, I've got a tech person that helps us with our, our CRM and doing some other miscellaneous things within the business. Um, let's see. Don't want to forget anyone here. Uh, and then, like I said, we're bringing on a value add person. We're bringing on a, um, a marketing person. Oh, also, we've got a head of acquisitions. They're in, they're in charge of kind of like evaluating deals that come in, putting a number on those deals. You know, like, well, what will we buy this property for? Do we want to actually buy it? Things like that. So, wow. I, I think if you took either mine or Dan's standard operating procedures, um, each one has a position in your business. And that's really, really amazing to see. And I know I saw Dan light up because um, it, uh, I think you're leading into one of our, our questions that we definitely have for you. But before I let Dan ask that, Pete, like if you left today's October 30th, 2023, if you shut off your phone, and if you left the country for three months, how well do you think your business would do right now? Um, probably not so great. Yeah. Uh, we brought on the, um, I brought on a COO, um, three months ago. And, and at that point, uh, I knew in when our initial discussions were like, Hey, my, my goal is to get 
out of all the day-to-day the business so I can do something like that. You know, like we used to travel a lot. We used to do all those kind of things. I'm not, I'm, uh, as if you ever listen to Alex Ramosi, he talks about seasons, you know, yeah. like I'm in one of the seasons where I got to put in all the work and I'm, I'm actually happy with it. I'm, I'm very, um, positive. I'm not like saying this is bad in any way, but I'm in one of the seasons where I got to really actually put in the work because I know that I'm kind of at a unique spot here to really grow things and really do something big. So, um, in another six months though, I think I'll be able to, I think I'll be there and I think I'll be able to do that, but it's a process, you know, and, and that's a part of, part of the problem was the way I set it up from the beginning. If I would have, if I would have hired the person on the top to kind of set things up uh, the right way from the beginning, then it wouldn't be like this, but I've still got my hands in a lot of different things and I don't want it to be that way, but it is that way. So <laughs> right now. Well, appreciate the transparency there. Cause I think that's the case from most people. It is rare to find someone that's especially three years in, fully systemized and offloaded their business, which your whole, the whole conversation about hiring employees, this is so integral to where both Mason and I are at where, right now, where I was thinking about this the other day and I could go send another 10, 20,000 mailers a month. I have the budget for it. All the other systems are straightforward. It's just the labor, the well-trained labor, that's the bottleneck and specifically the acquisitions because transaction coordination you know, everything else is fairly basic. You teach someone just your systems and that's that. Whereas acquisitions, and, and tell me if you disagree, maybe it's just the markets I'm in, but acquisitions, you really need an exceptional salesperson that knows how to communicate and is properly incentivized and self-sufficient. And so this is somewhere that both Mason and I, and especially me, I think Mason's done a better job than I have of hiring and training exceptional people for acquisitions, because that's the lifeblood of the business, of course, is buying good deals. And so can you talk or speak a little bit about how you go about hiring good salespeople for acquisition? Yeah. Well, luckily we're in a pretty good spot where we've got two on our team, which are, um, they're, they're really solid and they do a great job for us. And ultimately, you know, there's different, there's diff, kind of different levels of it. You know, you could get someone in that's basically just an order taker and, and just says, you know, is able to get a certain percentage of deals. You could get someone at the very, very top that's going to convert a very high percentage of those as well, and and, uh, and then it's just a matter of like, so you could you could have someone perfect on this end and someone that just does the bare minimum on this side of things, and each of those are going to affect your conversion rates on these deals, and you know your cost per deal, which is really what's what's uh, what's what's important here. So, uh, you know, you want to find someone closest to this, you know, perfect side of things, and if, if you know if. If I was you know, looking for a job and I, I got in that role, I would not be perfect. I would probably be somewhere, you know, somewhere in the middle. But, you know, I think I think um, striving to, you know, for for, you know, someone that's absolutely perfect is probably uh, probably difficult there. But I do think that you know you do need to find you do need to put a lot of effort into finding really solid talent for your team, and even if it takes you you know, 50 interviews to find those right people. And then you go forward with who you thought was the right person. And pretty quickly you realize, okay, they're not, they're not who I thought I was. And then pretty quickly, you know, you should be shifting gears and uh, moving forward with another option. You know that they're not, not the best for your team. So uh, I don't know. Um, the acquisition side of things is obviously very important and it's going to affect your cost per deal. And, uh, but there's a lot of profit margin built into this business as well. So, you know, if you're, if it's taking your cost per deal from 
3,000 to 4,000, um, you know, and, but you're making $25,000 per deal. Is it really such a big deal? I don't know. Agreed, agreed with you there. It's, e- it's easy to get messy in this business. And as you scale, yeah. you achieve the economies of scale, which makes it even easier because you're able to have a much higher deal, deal flow and your, your cost per deal might go up and your total margin might go down. But, um, since you turn it into a volume business, it still works out. But, uh, with your team and having so many people on it, I think of things. So my, my background is healthcare. I was a hospital executive and people always talk about the silos in healthcare and how there's such a difference between administration and their incentives and nursing and physicians and all that kind of thing. How much interaction does your acquisition manager and your transaction coordinator and your future employee, the value add person, how much interaction do they currently have? And do you see them having going forward? How well do they work together? I think is the easiest way to ask that question. Yeah. Well, one thing that's, one thing that's very important to me when we're hiring is, um, I guess culture mindset, you know, like, like, so those types of things are important to me. Like I'm a happy go bucky type person. I'm, I'm skewed to the positive to a fault. My wife tells me, so I like to bring in people on my team that are going to have that same mindset, are happy. Um, they're not a detriment to be around. They're not going to bring everyone down with them if they're having a bad day. So I want those positive skewed people that are going to interact well with the team. And that's, that's really important to me. And that's one of the big things that I look for. Uh, so that we do have a lot of in- interaction with all different team members. We use Slack, you know, we're all, vert- we're all, you know, remote. So we've got team members all over the world. Uh, we've got a lot of people in the U S but we've got a lot of people overseas as well. And we all interact very well on, on Slack and, and everyone's friendly and there's very rarely any sort of negativity or situations like that where me or the COO has to step in to, to, uh, to, to correct anything. So, uh, we do regular meetings. Um, we're implementing the EOS system. If you've ever heard of that. Um, and, uh, you know, so before I'd say that before I brought on the COO, I ran a pretty loose ship. You know, I was like the, I was like the, the wheel, like the center spoke of the wheel, like everyone on the team would come to me, you know, like questions, anything like it was all coming from me. So I was, you know, messaging people all day, all kinds of, it's just, just tough, you know, and, and now we're trying to, to change that. But the EOS system's great because it, it really defines a lot of things. It's not just about like, um, communication structure, but it's also about, you know, standards setting KPIs or goals for, you know, team members to, to be accountable for and, and things like that. So it just, it just takes a lot of that, um, that gray area out of things. People know what's expected of them. And we're just at the beginning of implementing all this, but, but I know over time that it will be a really good team, a really good thing for our team and for the, the business as a whole. And it'll allow us to scale to, to where we want to go. That's great. Yeah. And that's the entrepreneurial operating system, which comes from traction for those of you guys that aren't familiar. It's a really great way to operate any organization, whether it's a startup with uh, yourself as your own employee and or a gigantic large sales organization. So that's, it, it provides structure to, and, you know, to kind of summarize what Pete said about his, his, uh, his hiring tactics, it's uh, hire, hire slow, fire quick, um, and, um, make sure that they're a good cultural fit of, you don't have to be best friends with everyone that works for you or that you work with, but, uh, 
it's a job until it's not a job. So make it fun. Make it fun for everyone. Yeah, no. And, and you led into another question that I had there, Pete, which is about where your employees are located. So you said they're all remote, some U.S.-based, some overseas. Specifically to acquisitions, are they U.S.-based or have you had success with overseas acquisition managers? Yeah, they're they're both U.S.-based. Yep. So I, I did try that briefly overseas acquisition manager. It just, and it was very brief, uh, about two week, uh, about a two week, uh, test run. And I just felt like there wasn't a connection happening there of ultimately, you know, in that role, they need to connect with the property owner. You know, they, they need to connect as a person with them. And just the fact that, you know, there's, there could be a, a language barrier accent, that type of thing. It's difficult you know, and cultural too. It's difficult for someone that's overseas to to be thrown into the mix and and try to, you know, make a connection with someone you know in uh, in rural part of the United States somewhere. So it's 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 just so different. So, you know, I th- I felt like that's that's important, and obviously it costs more, you know, to hire people in the United States and and uh, you know have them on your team. But I I thought and and that role is really really important for sure. Yeah, that's been my experience as well. And I know Mason's guy is U.S.-based. To get past that initial barrier where the seller is worried about, is this a scam? You know, getting past the amygdala, the frontal frontal cortex, you got to be able to relate to them. And unfortunately, you have to generally sound similar to them. So same experience that we've had. Uh, Okay, so we've got a, a great idea of what your team looks like. How are you financing all these deals? Because you're not doing assignments, correct? These are all... Lots that you're closing and reselling. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. We're we're buying all of them, so we're not um, we're not signing any of them and uh, things like that. So uh, from the very beginning, um, we were lucky to have a little bit stashed away, so I could um, use our own money to finance all of, all of the deals. And then you know, as you know, in this business, when you start selling things, you know, in sixty to ninety days, and you double your money in sixty to ninety days, it starts to snowball really quickly. You know, your inventory grows. Um, over time, but also uh, that that pile of money should also increase pretty rapidly as well. So, you know, for the first uh, almost two and a half years, I was like every single thing was just all cash, uh, our, our own cash. Uh, I did do two larger deals, uh, actually three larger deals with partners at, at this point, uh, where I I found the deal and brought them to a, a funding partner, and then we split the profits and that type of thing. Uh, but that, uh, but I stopped doing those, uh, and I only did those for, for very large deals. And at this point, you know, we, we've got our podcast and kind of presence and things like that. So we've been able to get connected with a number of private lenders and we're just, you know, for, we're still doing a lot of our own things, cash, but some of the bigger ones I'm like, well, even if I've got the cash thing there, it kind of makes sense to, uh, have a private lender you know, lend on the deal rather than, you know, me, you know, using our own cash, you know, $100,000 or something like that. It's better to have a private lender put that forward. And obviously we got to pay them interest and points and things like that, but it allows us, it gives me the bandwidth to do a lot more deals. And I don't have to worry about like, is the money going to be there or worry about time and closings and things like that. Uh, it's, I know, I know the funds are there if I need them and we use them, you know, on those larger transactions when whatever makes uh, makes sense for sure. So awesome, yeah. I'm I'm looking at your website right now, and it it looks like you 
kind of created a similar model to something that Dan and I have been doing of it's essentially a debt arbitrage of you're using private lenders money where looking at what you offer to your lenders, it's it's basically what hard money lenders offer to the house flipper of a couple points yep. of origination and then a way, way more than competitive uh, compared to what people will get in the market secured by real estate of, you know, here's an opportunity for the passive investor to take money out of their IRA or something like that and get to work with you and do it. And uh, just like with any business, um, you can't do it by yourself. You need other people's money to start really, really scaling. Um, so that's that's really cool to see. But Pete, with with what your deals look like, um, you know, and I can glean a lot of information from the website, uh, kind of if you were to break them down from just a traditional flip, buy it cheap, sell it for more to uh, I hear you doing some sorts of value add, kind of what what are your typical deals, you, three to four typical standard deals look like if you were to define them? Yeah. So a lot of them, you know, kind of on the lower side at this point, you know, and we've done smaller deals over time, you know, I've kind of gravitated away from those, you know, like buy for 7,000, sell for 20,000, like that's a great return, you know, and, uh, but you, you're not making a, a not, like, as far as the absolute amount of profit involved, that's just not huge, you know? So it's harder to, to really scale that up. Plus the smaller properties like that have more problems and seem to be more of a headache anyhow. Uh, so, uh, but, but now typically I, you know, a few of the kind of standard ranges that a lot of them fall into would be like, okay, buy for 20, sell for 45 or something like that. So, you know, we might make $20,000 on it after closing costs and, and all that stuff. Uh, another kind of standard range, it seems like a lot of them fall into would be like buy for 50, sell for 90 or something like that. You know, not quite a double, but maybe pretty close and, and actually pretty good amount of profit and something like that. And we have some that, that, uh, you know, end up being really good. You know, they could be something like buy for 70, sell for 165 or, you know, something like that. So a lot of this, uh, I love those types of ones that fall into that range and, uh, you know, and then we've done some really big deals. Um, it did one just recently close by for four fifty, sell for nine seventy nine. So, uh, so that's a good one. And you know, on the market for a week, cash buyer, you know, close in two weeks after that it was great. So, what what typically are your days on market right now with these deals? <laughs> this year, it's been averaging just over a hundred days on market for all for all the properties that we resold this year. Now, I would have to say there's a couple of, a couple of caveats to that. Um, it's an average, so it also factors in properties that we held for an exorbitantly long. For, in my book, you know, like we held them for like almost a year or something like that, which is not good in the land flipping business, you know. And uh, on properties that I wouldn't, you know, like knowing what I know now, I wouldn't have gone forward with those deals just because I've learned lessons and I know certain types of deals we're probably going to sit in the market for a while and you're not going to make a lot of money. So, uh, so I'm, I'm constantly trying to learn from those lessons and avoiding those types of properties. So we have some of those in there really throwing off our averages. Um, also we've been trying to focus on larger deals and, you know, typically the larger deals take a little bit longer to sell. Not in that specific example I gave you right there, you know, the buy for 450 sell for 979, but you know, uh, but typically on an average, they do take uh, a little bit longer to sell. So some of those things have skewed the averages. Last year was, I think we averaged for the whole year was like 77 days on average, something like that. 
But when I'm looking at individual deals, you know, I was thinking about this because like the last last week, this past weekend that just passed, I'd spent like the whole weekend doing the income report, which I do every month. But I was thinking, you know, I should probably also talk about like the median, you know, like not just the average, like the median deal or whatever um, it's, instead of that. Because I was looking at a lot of the properties, you know, like some were 32 days, 44 days, 43 days, you know, like, like quick. And, and then we got a couple that were like, you know, 322 days or something like that. So I don't know. Totally get that. We always advocate for using yeah. the median as much as possible just to give that, that, that main number. Probably, probably makes more sense. So yeah. Yeah, no, we've all, we've all had a few of those. Uh, I get that. But th- there's one point you made that I really want to pull out uh, because so many land investors can't get out of the ridiculous margins in this space and think logically about this. So you said, oh, sometimes we'll buy for 50 and sell for 90. So it's not quite a double. But if you do that, let's say you buy for 50, sell for 90 with closing costs and everything, you make 30, 33 grand, somewhere in the low 30s, right? Okay. That is still an exceptional return. And so often, I think land investors pass up deals like that because it's not a double. And, and for a while, people thought, oh, it has to be a triple or better. I think there's, or no, there is a sliding spectrum of profit margin and desirability of market. And what I mean is there's a few Florida markets where every single time I list a property, it's under contract to sell at or above list price within two to five days. In those markets, I'm closing one at 30 and I'll probably sell at 48 to 50. I don't care because it's going to sell in two to three days, right? And so this is an important point there that the return is relative to the time it takes. And so if you can buy for 60 and sell for 90, but do it in 40 days, I'll take that deal. But I would take it. I would take it too. Yeah. If you, if you want to spend any of them to me, please reach out to me. Yeah. Dan, Danny, you make the great point there of it's, it's important to know your numbers and, you know, check out Pete's website, uh, turningprofit.com where he's got the podcast and he goes in depth on I mean, how much mail he's sending and what his gross profit per deal is. And it's the recognition of, yeah, you can look at things on a cash-on-cash return basis, or you can look at things on an annual return basis, which is why I make fun of my joint venture partners, where I had some guy that funded a deal that closed within, I don't know, three hours of being on the market and 20-day close. And uh, we had some issues with it. And I was like, hey, man, you know, you got 24% cash-on-cash return, but if you annualize it, you got a thousand and fifty five percent annualized return and you can't beat it. But um so I, I, I love your transparency, Pete. I, I think it's really helpful for everyone listening and uh, getting to understand kind of what it takes. You send a lot of mail, you get a good amount of deals and I'm sure you pass on a, a good amount of deals. But something Dan and I talk spend a lot of time talking about is the sustainability of land flipping. And we say this as both active full time land flippers ourselves of do you see it being a sustainable business, just being able to buy cheap and sell for more with how there's starting to become more of us in the space, more competition? Or do you feel like that value add position that you're in the process of adding right now is going to kind of be the majority of your revenue that you're generating going into 2024 and the years beyond? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So yeah, kind of two sides to that. I do feel that it's very uh, sustainable business. Just like uh, any sort of market, there's always going to be buying and selling. And there's always going to be people buying for below market value and then doing a, doing an arbitrage and then taking it uh, you know, to another market and reselling it. So 
I think that'll definitely still exist. And I don't think that's going anywhere. I mean, if you look at cars, you know, you look at the used car market, you've got, uh, you know, you've got AutoNation, whoever's like, hey, we buy your car. They're just looking to buy it at a wholesale price and then they stick it on their lot and they retail it, you know? So uh, that's not going anywhere and it's it, it, it never will, I don't think. So especially when you've got things like, like land or cars or larger type purchases uh, where liquidity may be not, um, may, may be not as easy. So we've always got that, um, we've always got that kind of offer that we can provide to people. It's like, Hey, we'll, we'll pay cash. We'll close quickly. We'll, we'll be make it a very easy transaction. That's always going to appeal to a certain segment. And obviously there's going to be more competition and things like that as we, as, as the business model gets more interesting to people. But but then, you know, like like you mentioned too, the value add thing, I think that there's a lot of opportunity there as well. I mean, like, and, and value add doesn't have to be, you know, there's a lot of ways to value add. You can buy a hundred acre parcel and split it up into five 20 acre parcels and sell them off individually because you get a higher price per acre. That's, that's, a, that's a very easy value add in a lot of areas. Uh, but other stuff like that, maybe even more minor, you know, just kind of like um, dressing things up for sale, meaning getting some brush cleared, getting some paths cleared for the, through there. Like I'm sure you guys have, have had a lot of properties that are like fully wooded and they're so wooded and they've never been, nothing's ever been done to these properties. It's like a jungle. you like, you can't even walk into these properties to get into the interior of the property without like a machete or something like that. So in those types of situations, just a simple fact of like clearing some trails or maybe clearing like a potential home site on that property is going to make it so much easier to sell and you probably sell it for more. Um, so a lot of those things though, it's, it's tough. If like, if you're a single operator, it's tough to do a lot of those things yourself, unless you have good contacts already in a particular area. And that's why we're adding someone specific to our team, because I look back on a lot of properties like that, that we've owned. And in reality, um, on a lot of them, we probably should have invested two, three, $5,000 to do whatever clearing we need. And sold it for $10,000, $20,000 more and sold it quicker. Um, we should have done those, but you know, sometimes it's a pain in the butt to get all the bids, find someone that's available, all this kind of stuff. So um, bring someone on my or team that's dedicated to doing those types of things that I think will re- really pay off in the end. Um, other things like park tests or you know, a survey is sometimes something you have to get done, requirement of title or things like that. So there's a lot of things like that that can be done. I think that can kind of, uh, maybe not heavy value adds, but, but they definitely do have an impact. I think what Pete's saying right there is I, a a lot of people that listen to our content and probably your content too, are from the wholesaling world and single family homes or the flippers and single family homes. And, uh, what Pete's describing right there is the cosmetic flip of, Go put some lipstick on that pig and make it look a little prettier. And whenever some a frustration that sometimes investors have with the retail buyers out there, um, and some retail, you know, the real estate agents that we work with is, I look at a piece of land as a blank canvas of what couldn't I do with this, and I think a lot of people will look at that piece of land and say, "There's trees there. How could I build a house where there's trees?" Or there's a slope. How could I build a house if there's a slope? Even if the house next door to it is built on a 45 degree angle with an insane walkout basement retaining walls and engineering. And I think the more that you can think about 
putting yourself in the shoes of the end retail buyer for a lot of this land that's not being purchased by investors. They want it to look pretty. They want it to look usable. If you can go pay the neighbor the neighborhood kid to go mow the lawn, trim the trees, or uh, whatever it is, of say, hey, this land parked for a three bed, you know, three bed two bath house, or uh, you know, soils came back and it's going to need a typical foundation versus a specialized foundation in certain areas in Colorado and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's a simple way to add value to the equation that doesn't involve going vertical. Yeah, yeah, we actually just closed on a property and I had to kind of go back to that house flipping world, which I used to do um, a lot of house flips because it was a hundred acre property and had a, has an old farmhouse on it. So our plan with that property is we're going to split it up into a bunch of 10 acre parcels and 10 acres with the house and then sell them off individually. But, you know, like I had, I was like, okay, well, we got to find some of the trash out the house, um, put the utilities in our name, rekey it, you know? So like, you know, it just kind of took me back to that, that world. And you typically, uh, you know, I got away from that because you don't have to do any of that type of stuff with land. Generally, it's like you own it and it's like, oh, well, I own it, you know, now it's time to sell it. So, uh, so it's just, just interesting. I'm glad you brought that point out, Mason, because Pete, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like the majority of the land that you're flipping is going to a retail end user is going to build their dream home or maybe recreate on it. But that's more your niche. And so your value add strategies apply accordingly. Whereas, you know, for me in my business, most of what I'm selling, it's just going to a builder. And so they're not looking, they're looking for efficiency. So is it easy to put a home here? Are the utilities right there? You know, do I need another power pull or is the electric right there? Is topography an issue, right? They're, they take a, a far more pragmatic view. And so drone shots don't mean anything for most of what I sell. Whereas for what you're selling, drone shots are probably really important because you want beautiful photos for the MLS. So I'm glad you pulled that out of there, Mason. Uh, but we've hit on a lot of different parts of your business. Um, I would say, or I would love to know right now, today, you seeing any major changes? Are things still moving for you like they have been the last year? You know, what's going on for you today, fall, heading into November 2023? Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't really noticed any sort of big slowdown or big, you know, market type correction or anything like that. I mean, uh, most of the areas are, the values are are actually creeping up in a lot of areas, you know, a lot of, a lot of the busy areas at least. Now, there are some slower markets where I could see, okay, like we probably have to reduce some properties and things like that to, you know, just to to put our property at the front of the list and be aggressive and sell it as quickly as possible. But, but in a lot of areas... The prices are actually still going up, and I don't know if it's inflation or, or just not the inventory is not there or whatever it is. But in a lot of those areas, things are, things are going pretty well with that, and we're able to sell things pretty quickly. And you know, we always have those dogs that don't sell as quickly as we want, and things like that. But we're, we've been uh, getting better and better at minimizing those type of properties over time. That's good to hear, and you know, it's it's fun getting to learn from you, Pete, because I think. Um, We've all iterated our businesses uh, a decent amount. Dan's been in the business the longest of the three of us. I'm about a year behind you. Uh, started in November of 2021, um, and you know, going back and forth between wanting to create a volume business of doing a ton of deals where you make five thousand, and then one or two that you make a couple hundred thousand. But uh, something you mentioned a little bit before, and where I kind of want to move move the episode as we're heading towards the close is 
you mentioned that you're a bottleneck in the business, um, whether it's people coming to you or uh, need, needing your opinion on something. What is what are some of those bottlenecks specifically? Um, and kind of this, I, I know you're bringing more people on to help alleviate some of those and you have the COO, but what was that slap in the face moment where you recognized you were the one inhibiting growth in your business? Ah, uh, that's a great question. Uh, I don't know if there was one kind of slap me in the face type moment, but it just kind of started to build and like frequently, you know, we use Slack for, for our communication and frequently I would notice like, Hey, I need to know, do you, what do you want to do on this property? Do you want to invest, you know, do you want to do this or do you, do you want to do that? You know, like, or, uh, what do you want to, you know, what's the, what's the most you would pay for this property or something like that? And I'm like, okay, you know, it'd be easy for me to just throw out an answer. But the problem is that it's not just me throwing out an answer. It's like, actually I have to spend like 15 minutes researching something like that in order to give it the right answer. Um, so what, you know, and it's just like it built over time. There's more and more of these things and I can't keep up, you know, I'm like, there's physically just not enough time of the day. Like I get up at four fifty in the morning, I go work out and I basically I start my work day at eight. Um, but I work all day and might go for a walk in the afternoon. Normally we do do with my wife, but after dinner, I'll get back to work and I'll work till nine o'clock, go to sleep. And it's like, like the same thing every day. And even on the weekends. So it's like, I, I realized that the, like there was no more time for me to like work harder and keep up and everything like that. And just kind of looking at it, like, I'm like, oh, it would run so much more efficiently if like I wasn't involved here. So part of the EOS system is, is empowering your team, you know, like being able to make decisions on their own, like up to certain levels, like they're able to make the certain decisions up to this dollar amount or things like that. Or if they have something where they need, you know, a manager's approval on or something like that, there's a whole system to like bringing that to you. Like they, they bring it to you with, with their recommendation, potential solutions, you know, like what they would do. So it's very easy for me to look at that and say, okay, do this, you know, instead of me spending like 15 minutes to try to research what I think is the best and then comparing with them what they think is best. So like there's a system, there's a way to kind of uh, take situations like that and, and empower your team uh, in the right way. And if, and if it's something that's, that's, they still can't make the decision on that needs your help, then it needs to be kind of um, served up to you on a silver platter. So it's easy for you to make that decision. So a lot of those things kind of came together. It's just like, I realized there was just not enough time for me to do everything that I want to do in order to grow this business as much as I want to grow it. And uh, something had to give. <laughs> so No, I, I get that. And uh, Dan does too. And I, I think a lot of people listening, depending on if you have an employee or an employer mindset, might hear, Pete, that's taking you 15 minutes to make how much in profit? You're averaging 22,000 profit per deal. Get over yourself, dude. But what ends up happening is that 15 minutes happens 100 times a day. And there's only so much time in the day. And whenever you have the personality that that Dan or Peter myself has of we're we're the gregorious entrepreneur that loves setting the vision of the organization and go 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 go, and I have a seller send me a non-fillable PDF seller disclosure or a realtor send me the non-PDF seller disclosure that I have to print out sideways and check four hundred boxes of a bunch of questions that I don't know the answer to because I automated my acquisition. Oh, I love this. Um, it's a headache. It's a headache. And so when you hear this on episodes, 
reach out to people like us if that's your personality of you know systems and processes and the lean and six sigma methodology that's out there because you can solve a lot of entrepreneurs problems if you're the type of person that can go implement an eos uh into the business but i'll hop off my soapbox before i start complaining about you know doing my quickbooks mileage which is the the bane of my existence <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's good stuff great stuff Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so Pete, we had a an overarching question here that you've kind of answered it in, in piece, pieces before you even asked it, which is Mason and I have had many conversations where we've doubted the scalability of the simple arbitrage of land flipping, which you're proving we're, we're short-sighted there. And so I think you've, you've given quite a few examples as to how you're scaling, but you keep referencing where we intend to go. And so I'm really curious... Where are you taking this business? What are your long-term goals over the next, you know, three, five, ten years with the business? What do you see as possible? Mm-hmm. Well, our goals over the next three to five years is to be the largest land investment company in the United States. I don't even know at this point. I don't even know who the biggest is, or like, I don't even know what that what that level is. Uh, but I do know that uh, there's a lot of room from where we're at um, to where you know, the potential to where, where we can go. So we're, we're doing a lot of stuff to kind of set us up for that direction. You know, typically like one of the things is like, we've, we've generated all of our deals in the past with direct mail. So we're now delving into other areas to try to, um, get lead flow from these other areas as well, specifically cold calling and not, and that we're not doing it like on our team herself. We hired a company to do the cold calling on our behalf. And then also uh, pay-per-click is another area that we're going to try to get to work for us. So, and we've, we've hired an agency that was um, hopefully going to help us get, get to where we need to go. And those types of things are both pretty scalable as far as deal flow and things like that. So we're going to continue with our direct mail and try to scale that up as much as we can, but also in those other areas as well. Then there's plenty of other areas where you can get deals from. And we were just talking, we just recorded an episode where we were talking about all those uh, different ways. And, and I think thinking out of the box some ways uh, sometimes is, is a great way to, you know, maybe look into some of these other areas, which traditionally haven't been that popular with land investors. But I think there's maybe, there's maybe potential there could be things like TV ads could be, um, you know, could be all kinds of uh, different stuff like that and and working together, you know, um, Facebook retargeting ads and things like that. Like we haven't done that, but I probably should be doing that. You know, anyone that hits our website, they should be getting some sort of ad from us on Facebook or YouTube or things like that. So there's a lot of areas for expansion. And this year I've been pretty public that I wanted to do, wanted to do $10 million in revenue. That's probably not going to happen. Uh, we're over at about um, over 6 million right now, but, and we've got, uh, got a lot in the pipeline that's ready to close, but we're probably going to if I had to just guess right now, I'd say eight to nine million, something like that in revenue. Uh, that's an obviously not profit, but you know, maybe close to three million in profit, something like that, gross profit that is. And um then um, you know, next year, double at least double that, I think, and three to five years down the road. I mean, I I don't see why like hundred million dollars in revenues is, is I I don't see why that's not possible at all. So um the other thing I should mention too is that we recently got uh, involved in the um, partnership side of things, like funding other investor deals. So 
that has just like taken off as a, like a rocket ship for us. And, um, you know, I think we've got, you know, something like 40 deals under contract that are uh, other investors brought to us that we're partnering with them on. And we're kind of doing it in a unique way that like they bring the deal. I plug it into my team and my systems and everything like that. We get the deal closed. We do all the due diligence. We pay for all that due diligence. Um, if it needs um, brush clearing or survey, any of that kind of stuff, we pay for it. And then when the property resells, uh, then we split the profits 50-50. So it's like a traditional funding arrangement, but but we take it a step further and kind of leverage everything that we've built and all of our systems and everything and kind of take that off of the investor's plate. So uh, they just get kind of the upside. And if there's downside, if we were to lose money or you know, if a deal just falls through and I spent $2,000 on a survey or, you know, I'm not coming after that investor and saying, oh, you owe me money or anything like that. So they get, they get, uh, you know, 50% of any profit, but they get no, no downside. So anyhow, that program has, has really allowed us to, um, uh, I think take things up another notch and we're, we're super excited about where that's going to. So that's awesome. And it's, it's such a competitive advantage. That's something that Dan and I are doing as well. And it's the, you have the systems in place that allow you to essentially just expand your business and that competitive advantage that you have against the institutional lenders, because institutional lenders won't come in and lend on land, even if it's 50% of value, uh, because the value can be arbitrary, yeah. but you know it. And, um, that's a really cool model. So Pete, before we start kind of moving towards the end of it, uh, First, are there any questions that we didn't ask you that you wish we had asked you? And second, where can people go to find out more about you and all the opportunities that you have within your land investing uh, kingdom that you have created? Oh, okay. Uh, well, I wish you asked me about all my hobbies. Um, no, I don't really have many hobbies. I work out. I work out a lot. <laughs> and, I, and I like business and getting our businesses off the ground. So those are my hobbies. So no, that... You guys did a great job with asking questions, by the way. They're like some some other stuff that, uh, you know, if you weren't in like the land business and no, like you wouldn't, <laughs> you like you wouldn't know to ask. So it's uh, very very cool being on here and kind of getting into some of these topics, which you know, I only talk about with my wife and my COO. So it's it's great. Oh yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. So uh, oh, and then where where can people find me? I've I've got kind of a lot of resources. I've spent. You know, this this past year, I've I've actually made a, a huge effort to kind of get myself out there and kind of um, build the foundation for an education side of the business. So we've got our whole land flipping operation. We're obviously deeply involved in that and running things. Uh, then we've got a whole other side of the business, which is uh, this past year we've kind of laid that whole foundation for getting that going. And the other side of the business is called Land Conquest. You can find it at landconquest.com. It's centered around a community uh, of land flippers. So people that are both brand new and experienced and land flippers are in the community. We've got about almost 2,000 people in that community right now. Uh, but the kind of cornerstone to that whole community is a training program that I put together. And I spent a lot, I spent like probably hundreds of hours on this myself. And then also uh, team members spent uh, lots of time on it as well. It's a... Um, land flipping training program and I give it away uh, entirely for free. And that's, that's in my community. Just my community is free. The training program is inside the community for free. And obviously, uh, you know, I, I get, you know, it's not like uh, people will say, well, well, why are you doing this for free? Because like nothing's for free. And you always hear that, that 
cliche and everything. There's no catch. Honestly, uh, I know that if I train people how to flip land and they, they get good at finding deals, then a good portion of them may be interested in my, my deal funding program, which can be found at partnerwithpete.com. So, uh, and then we're also in the middle of, uh, launching some, uh, mentorship programs and things like that, that we've got going on there. So a lot of, a lot of different things happening there. Um, you mentioned the income reports, which I do spend a lot of time on and I've, you know, almost a couple of years of income reports now, and those are all at turningprofit.com. And, uh, you know, each month I go into the, the revenue, the gross profit, each and every deal that we did, I break down like what we bought it for, what we sold it for, how much profit we made on that notes on, on each of those deals that happened. So spend a lot of effort into that. And my goal with that is just to kind of, um, gain exposure for my land flipping community, but also, you know, just to, just to show people what's possible in this business and, um, you know, what types of deals are out there? Like, what are you buying for? What are you selling for? All that kind of stuff wasn't really available when I started. So I, 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 I figured it would be valuable on the, the, um, response I've gotten so far and all that stuff is, has been really positive. And then associated with turningprofit.com, we also have a podcast, uh, and that's myself and my wife every week, every Tuesday, we release a new episode and that's on all the, all your favorite podcast platforms. Also on YouTube, we put it on there. We've got some other cool videos that we're doing on, um, YouTube as well. And then social media, um, par- at partner with Pete. So Heck yeah. So a lot of, no, that, that was amazing. (laughs) You set a goal of getting out there and you are out there. I remember hearing you on a podcast, uh, about a year or two ago. Uh, and you said that you set that goal. So you've done it. And I look forward to when we can have you on the show in about a year from now and you've automated everything and you can take three months off and, uh, we'll, we'll have a race that three of us of who can get to a hundred million dollar land first and, um, I, I can be done. Yeah. They can, I know it can be done. Heck yeah, it can. And I will say, uh, in the time I just signed up on landconquest.com. So super easy process. Oh, uh, it awesome. is free to do it too. So, um, go out there and join the community and, uh, add value and receive value. But Dan, anything else you want to leave us with or take us home? No, I, I think that's great. Pete, thanks for coming on guys. Go check out his website, uh, partner with Pete. It sounds like he's got a lot going on, but this is Dan Haberkost and Mason McDonald with the Big Picture Blueprint. Catch you guys next time. And that's it for today's episode of the Big Picture Blueprint. If you found it helpful, please share it with your friends or anyone you think that it could benefit. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating, and we'll see you in the next episode.